Section 21 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Chapter 12 Operations for Civilians. Plainly, psychological warfare operates against civilians with as much effect as it does against troops. Indeed, under the rather high standards set for modern warfare by the Hague and Geneva Conventions, psychological warfare is left as one of the few completely legitimate weapons which can on occasion be directed against an exclusively civilian and non-combatant target. Even the World War II erased most of the distinctions between military and civilian, leaving civilians in the vertical front line of all air war. Psychological warfare gained it became a more useful instrument for bettering war. Civilian interest in propaganda became no mere matter of emotional loyalty or philosophical preference, but a life-and-death matter to its recipients. After fire raids, it would be a madman who would disregard an enemy bomb-warning leaflet without trying to figure out its application to himself and his children. Shortwave Radio Shortwave radio is the chief burden-bearer of long-distance psychological warfare. It is more useful as a means of connecting originating offices with standard wave relay stations than as a direct means of communication. Even in free countries, shortwave sets are not often plentiful. The conditions of reception, from a purely technical point of view, are often undesirable. Recreational material does not go through since a shortwave listener will put up with the static when he is receiving vital, vividly presented news, but often will not try to make out soap opera or music over the squawks of the ether. And the use of shortwave reception in wartime implies a deliberate willingness on the part of the listener to do something which he knows to be disloyal or dangerous. Shortwave does make it possible for advanced standardwave propaganda stations to pass along material which has been prepared in the homeland. Large staffs can do the work. The news can be put through a large, alert, well-organized office. Features can be prepared by real professionals, acted out by a number of actors, put on records, reviewed, and then relayed to the standard wave station whenever needed. The Americans at Radio Saipan thus broadcast right into Japan and were able to transmit materials which could not possibly have been put on the air with the staff working on the island. The people at Saipan were mostly telecommunications technicians, engaged in picking up the shortwave from Hawaii or San Francisco and in passing it on into the enemy country on the standard wavelength. Millions of Japanese heard our Saipan standard wave broadcasts, in contrast to the dozens or hundreds who have heard our shortwave previously. The use of homeland facilities makes possible the advanced preparation of a large collection of material ready for broadcast. In security-sensitive or otherwise dubious situations, four or five alternate programs can be worked out for the same amount of program time. On wire recorders or disc records, the proposed material can be passed around in finished form, reviewed, selected, censored, and approved. This would not be true of a hurried station working far forward in the zone of operations. Shortwave has its own advantages, however, Apart from its utility as a means of getting program material to the relay stations, shortwave can and will be picked up by the enemy monitors and enemy intelligence systems. 
it will also be heard by persons of power wealth and influence irrespective of the economic or political system of the enemy the big shots of any system know how to transcend limitations that awe or defeat the ordinary man the short-wave transmitter speaks therefore to the enemy government to the groups which compose the enemy government and to the individuals in or out of the enemy government who are leaders in their country we found that the joho kyoko and the gaimushu foreign office in tokyo were mimeographing a daily summary of our san francisco broadcasts and we thus knew that anything we said over san francisco would be heard by the most influential men in japan captain ellis zacharias u s navy spoke japanese and had known most of the japanese leaders personally before the war with government monitoring known to exist he felt free to address the japanese leaders personally and directly with assurance his words would reach them and his broadcasts are confessed by the japanese themselves to have played a contributory part in bringing about the japanese decision to surrender standard wave the most effective use of radio is that which falls within the receiving capacity of the ordinary receiving sets owned or used by the enemy population this means the establishment of transmitting facilities close enough to the enemy territory for the programs to get through as between the united states and japan from nineteen forty one through nineteen forty four this was very difficult no americans ever dared join the shantung guerrillas whether koemintang or communist with transmitters and as long as we broadcast from the safety of our side of the ocean we could only hope that occasional freak conditions would echo programs into japan two or three times a month with the british and the germans it was altogether different the two countries were virtually touching and each could cover the entire enemy territory with short-distance standard wave broadcasting to an enemy known to have millions of radio receivers strategic radio becomes effective the chances provided for building up a consistent group of listeners for influencing their morale and opinions and for circulating rumors that will reach almost every single person in the enemy population the temptation to perform tricks to lapse back to peacetime standards of radio as entertainment or radio as advertising is a constant one the propagandist knows that he is being heard and he fears that his audience will lose interest if he does not stimulate them with a brilliantly variegated series of programs black radio comes into its own on standard wave the british could put the mysterious anti-british anti-hitler broadcaster gustav siegfried eins on the air with his rousing obscenities his coarse but believable gossip his wild diatribes against the allies and against the nazi scum who got in the way of the glorious german army he was so good that for a while even american propanol thought he might be a spokesman for the saucier members of the wehrmacht general staff the germans could broadcast proletarian propaganda on the lenin old guard station foaming at the mouth whenever they mentioned the crazy vile fascist swine hitler and then going into tantrums because the communist party needed all the brave glorious leaders who had been murdered by the fat bureaucrat stalin ed and joe could talk out of bremen and pretend to be scooting around the american midwest one jump ahead of the g-men with their trailer and concealed transmitter telling the rest of the americans the low down about that goof roosevelt and his jewish war but Ed and Joe were not good enough to fool anybody. 
black radio is great fun for the operators, but its use is often limited to a twisted kind of entertainment, designed to affect the morale of dubious groups. It leaps to sudden importance only in times of critical panic, when it can add the last catalyst to national confusion, precipitating chaos. The beginning and end of standard wave transmission is news. News, see page 135, uses standard appeals. It should be factual, but selectively factual. Repetition of basic themes is much more important than the constant invention of new ones. The propaganda chief has nothing to do, day in and day out, but to think of his own programs. He becomes familiar with them and bored by them. He visualizes his propaganda man as a person who hears old transmissions and is understandably bored by them, overlooking the interruptions that listeners face, the long gaps between the programs they hear, the weather interference, the static, the police measures. Even with peacetime facilities, tremendous simplicity and repetition are needed to convey advertising on the radio. In wartime, repetition is even more necessary. It serves the double function of driving the theme home to listeners who have heard it before while broadening a circle of listeners with each transmission. A point of diminishing returns is soon reached, but even diminished returns are often rewarding. The hardest-to-reach people are sometimes the one it is most important to reach with a simple, basic, persuasive item. Repetition thus ensures depth of response in the core audience, while adding to the marginal audience with each additional application. What is deadly monotonous to the propagandist himself may on the thousandth repetition merely have become pleasantly familiar to the propaganda man on the other end. The author has talked to any number of clandestine listeners to our propaganda who have almost wept with rage as they told of listening to jokes, novelties, political speeches, and other funny stuff when they hoped to get a clean-cut announcement of the latest military news. Communication through the mails. In World War II, propaganda was not able to make use of the mails, the way that propagandists of World War I succeeded in doing. The mails were much more intermittent. The channels in Germany through Scandinavia were not kept open except for Sweden, which was reachable, rather perilously, by air alone. Iberia was an inhospitable base. German counterintelligence was more than ruthless. It was effectively savage, and made the Germany of Kaiser Wilhelm seem rustic by contrast. With Japan, anything would have had to go through Soviet censorship to get there in the first place, and then meet the traditional intricacies of Japanese red tape. Male propaganda was therefore not heavily developed. Something was accomplished, however, by use of the Portuguese, Spanish, Swiss, and Chinese press. Enemy officials and private persons were known to read these, and it was possible to do a great deal toward influencing editorial content. Major male propaganda operations were conducted against us, however. The Nazis, as part of their pre-belligerent planning and operations, sent enormous quantities of propaganda through the United States mail, sometimes postage-free, under the frank of congressmen. The Japanese, down to the time of Pearl Harbor, kept large public relations staffs running at full speed in New York, Washington, and other American cities. They helped their American friends with money 
and by heavy purchase of copyright material friendly to Japan, thus making it unnecessary for any author to report himself as a Japanese paid agent, and they offered Japanese cultural and educational information to interested persons. It really was cultural and well done. By talking about Japanese poetry, religion, and cherry blossoms, and omitting all war propaganda, the handsome little booklets kept alive the memory of a hospitable, quaint, charming Japan. Some of this material was mailed directly from Japan to the United States. Since mail propaganda depends on the freedom of the mails, it is much more apt to be used by a dictatorship against us than by us against a dictatorship. Leaflets The types of leaflets are described in the next chapter, in the course of discussing leaflets addressed to troops. Each leaflet, designed for a military group, has its civilian equivalents. In addition to the military types, overt propaganda leaflets for civilians should include 1. Communications from legitimate authorities, whether government in exile, underground, or friendly quizzling of the civilians addressed. 2. Newspapers in air format, reduced in scale, but with a heavy proportion of the normal peacetime features of the audience's own press. 3. Novelty materials appealing to children, who are apt to become the most industrious collectors of leaflets, disseminating them far and wide, with less danger of reprisal from the occupying power or the police than adults might face. Good adult leaflets are as interesting to children as are leaflets specially designed for them. The use of color printing, vivid illustrations, pictures of air battles, how it works diagrams of weapons, and so forth, may reach the teenage audience, best if it gives no indication of being aimed at them. 4. Gifts. Soap, salt, needles, matches, chocolate, and similar articles dropped to civilian populations. This demonstrates the wealth and benevolence of the giver. Countermeasures to enemy use of this type of propaganda consist of dropping a few duplicates of his gifts, containing poison ivy soap, nauseating salt, infected-looking needles, explosive chocolate, etc. The Germans are reported to have followed this procedure against the American air gifts dropped to Italy and France. With the avoidance or the spoilage of gifts, the propaganda effects become so confused that both sides find it worth desisting for a while. 5. Appeals to women. Women, statistically, are around 50% of the population of any country. With a diversion of men to fighting operations, the percentage of women in the home population rises, and in wartime it may become 60 or 70%. They face social and economic problems much more immediately than do men, because the responsibility for maintaining homes and children normally falls on them. Evidence of humane intentions, of reluctance to wage the most cruel forms of war, of attempts to help civilians escape unnecessary danger, can bring women into the participating enemy group for relaying propaganda. Pamphlets Where airdropping facilities are plentiful, leaflets can be supplemented by pamphlets. Pamphlets have the advantage of giving the propagandist more space for text or pictures, enabling him to tackle enemy arguments in detail or in depth. Pamphlets can present sustained arguments, and thus come closer to meeting the domestic propaganda facilities of the enemy on even ground. 
They are especially useful in countering or neutralizing those enemy arguments which depend either on formal argument or on misapplied statistics, and which therefore require point-by-point -point confutation. The pamphlet shown in Figure 6 is an excellent example of the medium, though it carries a complex message. It can be read by persons at the lowest education level. It meets enemy propaganda over a whole range of themes. It is apt to be disseminated farther whether initial distribution be by ground or by air. Unlike the leaflet, the pamphlet is sometimes hard to conceal. For well-policed areas, it must be supplied with a protective disguise if it is to be passed along. One ingenious pamphlet made up by Dennis McAvoy and Don Brown at OWI for dropping on the Japanese started out with a warning. Enemy! Warning! This is an enemy publication issued by the United States government. Finder is commanded to take this to the nearest police station immediately. Enemy! This pamphlet gave a general statement of Japan's bad war position and was addressed to Japanese policemen and police officials. The cover urged the policemen not to keep the pamphlet, nor to destroy it, but to pass it on up through channels to their superiors, as an instance of enemy propaganda. We never found out what the Japanese police actually did when they got those. One Japanese black leaflet assumed the proportions of a book, and was made up in the familiar format of the pocket-sized 25-cent volumes, with a New York dateline, a copyright notice, and even printer's union label all neatly falsified, the book expressed opposition to Roosevelt's war. It was circulated by the Japanese as a captured enemy book, presumably, in order to convince their own people and their Asiatic associates that opposition to World War II existed within the United States itself. Almost all belligerents issued maligners' handbooks during the war. These started out with statements that the medical control system was inadequate, that each man had to look out for himself, and that feigned sickness was often the only alternative to real sickness. Disguised as entertainment booklets, instructions accompanying medicine, or even as official handbooks of the enemy government for this and that purpose, the leaflets gave detailed instructions on how to fake tuberculosis, heart trouble, and other diseases. Subversive Operations Propaganda to friendly civilians whose country has been overrun by the enemy can be effectively promoted by collaboration with local patriots, unless political considerations prevent such collaboration. This type of operation requires careful cooperation between propaganda, overt, subversive facilities, and intelligence personnel. World War II saw the type used on all fronts. The Japanese made especially bold use of it during the conquest of Malaya the occupation of Burma, and the Chinese railway campaigns of 1944. Natives on the enemy side were regarded by us as quislings. The Japanese honored them as patriots and duped them effectively. Bold black propaganda operations can often embarrass the enemy. The dropping of a few hundred tons of well-counterfeited currency would tend to foul up any fiscal system. Peacetime counterfeiters operate with poor materials, secretly, and in small shops. When instructed, a government agency can do an astoundingly good job of counterfeiting. The United States is on the vulnerable side of this operation because our money happens to be the most trusted and most widely hoarded in the world. Various governments are believed to have run off substantial numbers of United States 20 and $50 bills. Less offensive operations 
consists of giving the enemy populace sets of ration cards, along with simple suggestions on how to finish the forging job so as to make it convincing. The Nazis were especially subject to this kind of attack, since German methodical bookkeeping required a large number of documents to be in the possession of each citizen. Falsification of any of these made the German officials go mad with confusion. To a country suffering from too much policing, the transmission by black propaganda of facsimile personal identity cards in large numbers would be welcomed by many common citizens and would keep the enemy police procedure at a high pitch of futile haste. The essence of this, as of all good black propaganda, is to confuse the enemy authorities while winning the thankfulness of the enemy people preferably while building up the myth within the enemy country that large, well-organized groups of revolutionists are ready to end the war when their time comes. If white propaganda is to be compared to incendiary bombing, in that it ultimately affects the enemy armed services by disorganizing the homeland behind them, black propaganda may be compared to the tinfoil strips used in anti-radar. Black propaganda strikes directly at enemy security. It gives him too much to do and thus increases the chances for agents down on the ground to succeed in their lonely, dangerous work. Motion Pictures In consolidated areas, allied or neutral territory, and the home jurisdiction, motion pictures for civilians can be employed as a major propaganda instrument. The combination of visual and auditory appeal ensures a concentration of attention not commanded by other media. In both world wars, the U.S. made extensive use of film. Procurement can be either through direct governmental manufacture of the finished product or by subcontracting to non-governmental agencies. Propaganda films normally make a point of displaying the military prowess and civic virtue of the distributor. Officially distributed films are, however, almost always overshadowed by pure entertainment films. The wartime official movie can penetrate no deeper than can the unofficial picture. Financial and commercial control, plus censorship, limits the periphery into which motion picture showings can be extended. Often the private film will be shown when the public one will be suppressed. And in time of peace, the propaganda movie has ever sharper competition from its private competitors. Few propaganda movies have ever achieved the spectacular impact of some private films in portraying the American way of life. Tahitians, Kanzumen, Hindus, and Portuguese would probably agree unanimously in preferring the USA of Laurel and Hardy to the USA of strong-faced men building dams and teaching better chicken-raising. Only rarely does the cinema penetrate enemy territory or reach clandestine audiences. Its direct contribution to critical zone psychological warfare is therefore slight. Perhaps television may, in course of time, combine attention holding with transmissibility. End of section 21.